This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, I'll discuss with Andrea Rogers, Senior Litigation Attorney at Our Children's Trust, an Oregon-based public interest law firm, the recent Ninth Circuit Court decision in the Juliana versus the U.S. Ms. Rogers, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Ms. Rogers' bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Briefly on background, listeners of this podcast are aware of the Juliana case. Filed in federal court in 2015 by 21 children and others, the plaintiffs argued health harm caused by the federal government's support of the fossil fuel industry violates their right to a survivable climate that, in constitutional terms, violates the public trust doctrine or plaintiff's right to life and liberty. The plaintiffs argued further the court should redress harm done by issuing an injunction requiring the government to prepare a plan for judicial review and approval that would draw down greenhouse gas emissions. The federal government argued there is no fundamental constitutional right to a stable climate or that the state of the climate has no connection to personal life and liberty. On January 17th, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled 2-1 to one in favor of the U.S., with me again to discuss the Ninth Circuit's recent decision in Juliana is Miss Andrea Rogers, attorney for the plaintiffs. So with that as background, uh, Ms. Rogers, let me begin by asking, uh, again, the suit was initially filed uh, in 2015 in September. Uh, after the intro, there followed in your filing 30 pages outlining the health harm the plaintiffs have suffered due to the climate crisis. I'm interested in if you could summarize what health harm the plaintiffs claimed? Certainly. Um, we sort of divide up our, our health injuries into two categories, really physical health and mental health. Um, and in recent years, there's, you know, it's, there's been a few current studies really um, summarizing this very well. Um, but our experts, including um, doctors, Pacheco and Paulson are two pediatricians who drafted expert reports in our case. Dr. Howard Frumpkin is an epidemiologist who also drafted an expert report in our case. And then Dr. Lisa Van Susteren drafted an expert report on the mental health or the psychological injuries that the youth are experiencing. So those are really the, the, the categories of medical harm that we're talking about in this case. And when you look at the physical health injuries, you're really looking at these are a group of young people who are increasingly exposed to riskier and riskier conditions because of climate change. So, for example, many of the plaintiffs has, have asthma um, and have been exposed to increasing wildfire smoke. So they've had significant asthma attacks because of that, or they have been advised to actually stay inside um, and there's obvious uh, health consequences to that kind of following that kind of medical advice. A number of the plaintiffs have allergies that have also been exacerbated um, by varying climate change conditions, including the increase in pollen. 
Um, again, the wildfires can also exacerbate um, allergy and asthma attacks associated um, that are associated with, with each other. Um, and then there's also a number of other mental health impacts, you know, any ranging from anxiety to um, increased stress to, um, you, you know, feelings of uh, institutional um, aggression because you have a federal government who's charged with protecting you as a child, um, but instead they're knowingly causing you harm. So all of these um, injuries are well documented in the expert report. And one of the notable things about the Ninth Circuit most recent decision in Juliana is that the the court recognized that the injuries the plaintiffs asserted are they're not conjectural or hypothetical. Um, they're happening today. They're likely to get worse because of climate change. Um, and, you know, so the court really recognizes the validity of the injuries that the plaintiffs are ex experiencing. Thank you. In fact, in the opening uh, of the majority opinion, and I'm quoting, the record left little basis for denying that climate change was occurring at an increasingly rapid pace and that it will wreak havoc on the Earth's climate if unchecked. And plaintiffs claim concrete and particularized injuries, so they do admit that there has been a health harm caused, or they say in their three, and we'll get into this, their three-step test, that the injury requirement was met. I'm interested in asking you, there are many uh, amicus briefs uh, filed, and um, I'm curious to ask you if you could summarize or provide an overview of who filed, what kinds of organizations uh, filed an amicus brief in support of the plaintiffs. Sure, you're right. There were a large number of amicus briefs that were that were filed, um, including there were a large number of public health and medical professionals filed an amicus brief, law professors, um, members of Congress, um, environmental historians, a large number of environmental historians filed a brief supporting the court to find um, the historical basis for the climate right. Um, and environmental organizations and also international organizations as well um, who are very familiar with climate change cases being litigated in other countries. Um, a brief on behalf of a number of different businesses who are um, all being affected by climate change. So, they, for example, the National Ski Areas Association. Right. Um, and then also the faith community. Um, there were a number of different um, religious organizations that signed on to an amicus brief as well. Yes, thank you. Speaking of the, the last group, I did, uh, was not lost on me, Sisters of the Good Shepherd, Sisters Servants of the Immaculate Heart, Sisters of Mercy, Sisters of Providence, etc. I, I ask this question because I do know and have spoke with uh, physicians at Harvard, and I, I do know they expressed interest where they were involved, filed a brief. But it mm -hmm. is the case, in looking through the long list here of those that filed, there is no professional or healthcare trade association that is filed. Is that correct? Well, I well it depends how you define that. So there was a brief where a number of um, public health advocacy organizations signed on, including the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, American okay. Academy of Pediatrics, American Lung Association, 
Um, so a number of organizations did sign on to an amicus brief that focused on the, the health impacts, essentially, that the youth were experiencing. And that included 78 individual doctors signed on to that amicus brief, as well as the different organizations. Okay, but I will say it's disappointing not to see, for example, the American Medical Association, the American Heart Association, amongst others, but be that as it may. Well, the American Heart, well, just to be clear, the American Heart Association was on the amicus brief, as, along with the American Lung Association mm. and the American Pediatric Society, but I, I totally hear what you're saying, and I think you're starting to see um, increasingly the larger organizations are really recognizing the public health emergency that is facing children because mm -hmm. of climate change, and I, you know, the Lancet study is is one that comes to mind that received a tremendous amount of, of news coverage in terms of um, the findings that were made and how, you know, I also, another number of other medical organizations are issuing declarations and rec resolutions recognizing that climate change is a public mm -hmm. health emergency and is starting to use that language, which, as you know, is is very significant. Sure. I, I did interview uh, authors of the Lancet Countdown both this year and last year. Let's go to the majority opinion. So okay. this is Judge Andrew Hurwitz who wrote it, and um, again, both he and his colleague in the majority made note of the fact that there was actual uh, harm uh, that's been caused to the plaintiffs, but ultimately, uh, and I'm quoting, a remedial plan that the plaintiffs uh, requested, they wrote, would require the judiciary to supervise the government's compliance uh, with any suggested plan for many decades, and they thought this was beyond judicial power because it would be unlimited in scope and duration. But that point aside, what uh, can you characterize or give an overview of how they came to the conclusion they came to? Yeah, you know, well, the decision and just so this was a two to one decision. Right. So appeals are held in the Ninth Circuit. You get a three judge panel. Um, and the majority decision, essentially, they acknowledge that the kids are being injured by the government's conduct, um, perpetuating the use of fossil fuels. Um, they recognize that the government is not just, you know, it's, this isn't a case about inaction. This is a case where the government is affirmatively acting in a way that's causing and contributing to climate change and the mm -hmm. plaintiff's injuries. And the court found that the government's conduct was a substantial factor in causing and bringing about the plaintiff's injuries, which is pretty remarkable. And where the court disagreed with us was they essentially said, okay, even though you have this injury, the government's causing this constitutional injury, there's just nothing we can do about it. Um, we're not going to order the government to stop the conduct that they're undertaking. We're not going to order the, the government to come up with a plan to fix the problem. Um, and as the dissent said, you know, the majority really just throws up their hands and says, well, you know, this is awful. Here's a, here's a, here's a problem. And we're very reluctant, but we're going to dismiss the case. Right, exactly. In fact, in a way, they sounded almost apologetic for reaching this mm -hmm. decision. At the end, they say, the amount of fossil fuel emissions that will irreparably devastate the nation, uh, however, um, they, as you say, and, and in fact, we'll get to the dissent, they throw up their hands um, because they think it's beyond their reach and that this uh, issue should be resolved in the political realm or um, by legislators. So let's mm -hmm. go Let's go to, so they say, I, I love this, they say it's non-judiciable 
if I mm -hmm. pronounce that word correctly. But just, justiciable. 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 Thank you. Yeah, it's a terrible word, and I hate when we have to use it at oral arguments because it's definitely a tongue twister. <laughs> so let's go to the dissent, and it's been widely quoted. It's it's actually, in some ways, uh, sadly, a pleasure to read. But this is by Josephine Staten, and I should say all three, I believe, of uh, these uh, jurists were appointed by. Uh, President Obama, if that uh, if that matters, but as you say, uh, she wrote quite compellingly. I thought in her dissent, uh, and I'll just start you off here. She uh, her opening is is pretty pretty blunt. The government accepts the fact that the U.S. has reached a tipping point, crying out for a concerted response, yet pressed ahead toward calamity. It is as if an asteroid were barreling towards the Earth, and the government decided to shut down our only defenses. Seeking to squash the suit, the government bluntly insists that it has the absolute and unreviewable power to destroy the nation. My colleagues throw up their hands, there's the line, concluding that this case presents nothing fit for the judiciary, but a federal court need not manage all the delicate formulations, etc. Um, and then she concludes, plaintiffs spring suit to enforce the most basic structural principle embedded in our system of ordered liberty, that the Constitution does not condone the nation's willful destruction. So uh, please continue with what she argued. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, she recognizes, you know, the urgency, the existential crisis. And really, she sees that, you know, the, the all three judges agree that, you know, this is an existential crisis that we're facing, that the government is causing this problem. Mm -hmm. um, so there was a tremendous amount of agreement. And where they diverged was really, well, what is the proper role of the court in remedying a constitutional violation. And I think what Judge Staten said is, you know, what if, you know, we were back in the days of Brown versus Board of Education, right. and what if the court said, yeah, segregation of public schools is harming our children, it's a constitutional violation, but we're just going to wait until the political branches figure out what to do with uh, how to desegregate our public schools. We would be in a very different place in society if that was the case. And that's just one example. There's a number of different examples where governments, um, you know, purposefully either discriminate against children or create programs that are harmful to children. And we strongly believe it's the proper role of the court to step in and stop that unconstitutional conduct. And I think where the majority was troubled, you know, it comes a lot of confusion about what was the remedy we will we were ask, actually asking the court to order. You know, we were not asking the court to write a remedial plan or to develop the policies to decarbonize mm -hmm. the United States energy system. You know, that clearly is not the proper role of a court. But the court's job is to set the standard and to declare what is and what is not constitutional. So when they see the government conduct that's harming the plaintiffs, it's up to the courts to declare that that, that conduct is unconstitutional and then to do something about it, even if it's in the form of telling them to stop. Um, you know, there's there's a variety of different kinds of remedies that can be employed in that circumstance. And I think that's really what Judge Staten was talking about in her dissenting opinion, um, is that this is what our job is. We cannot leave our children in this um, situation. And it really calls into question um, the whole purpose of our three-partite system of government. If 
two branches of government are able to run roughshod over our constitutional liberties, um, what what do we have left? It's it's a very deep uh, question that's percolating through many courts um, in our nation today. Yeah, she's, she states that uh, our nation is crumbling at our government's own hand into a wasteland in relative to the constitutional right, the uh, perpetuity principle, the preamble states, uh, blessings of liberty to us and our, our posterity. Uh, the Constitution, therefore, does not countenance its own destruction. She cites Abraham Lincoln um, that uh, he acted because um, the Constitution will not tolerate Again, it being shredded by a secession. Um, and then she goes on to say, um, the majority laments that a Canuck stepped into the shoes of the political branches, but it appears ready to yield even if those branches walk the nation over a cliff. And she cites, of course, I thought appropriately Marbury, but we won't get into a constitutional law here. Um, <laughs> but right, very compelling, uh, I thought, argument and exceptionally uh, well-written. So this brings me to um, a question before I go to related other cases, and that is, what's your general sense of the media's coverage uh, of this case now, of course, uh, in its sixth year? And I ask because relative to health, health policy, um, as odd as it may sound, uh, we know the media, and this is a finding in the Lanson Countdown reports, we know the media typically does not connect the climate crisis with health. Mm-hmm. And I think the best example of this, because I have read this every day for at least 10 years, is the health, the Kaiser Health News morning clips. And I've probably read tens of thousands of stories they clip every over the decade. And you'd be hard-pressed to find more than five or ten on the climate crisis, meaning they don't connect the dots between it and population health, public health, or health care. So again, your sense of uh, the media coverage. You know, that's a, that's a really good question. And, you know, as uh, you know, I typically focus on the on the law, given, you know, I'm I'm a lawyer in mm-hmm. this case, I won't pretend to be a public relations or a communications right. expert. Um, but I will say it is frustrating in terms of, um, you know, the media really does try to simplify things and doesn't quite catch the nuances. And I think they've done a good job of of reporting on sort of the youth's commitment um, to the climate, to addressing climate change. And I think, as you can see, looking at the coverage of Greta Thunberg right. and others, you know, people are really excited to report when there's kids standing outside of a legislature or protesting in the streets. But I do think that the coverage of how children are actually being injured is, is quite underreported. Um, And it's something that you're just starting to see. I know there was recently an article, um, I don't recall which publication it was in, but just talking about the mental health impacts of climate change and, you know, sort of what some of the youth are experiencing in that regard. Um, So I think, you know, really there hasn't been a focus on that in the media. I would agree with you on that. And the other thing that we can get, we also get frustrated is that, you know, the, oftentimes the litigation is not accurately portrayed. So, for example, and I don't, you know, there was, there's been a few articles saying that we were asking the court to stop all fossil fuel subsidies. And, you know, fossil fuel subsidies certainly aren't helpful. 
But mm-hmm. we didn't challenge those in our litigation because those are acts, you know, most of them are, are through acts of Congress. And we didn't challenge those specific acts. So it always befuddled us as to why that then became our requested remedy in the case when we hadn't even asked for that um, or that we were asking for certain policies. You know, we were very clear and careful in our briefing to make it clear that, you know, we weren't asking the court to, to set any particular policies it's just their job to set the constitutional standard, what is needed to protect children in the mm. face of the climate crisis. And it's something courts regularly do when interpreting and applying the, the Constitution. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I want to ask you about the uh, Supreme Court of the Netherlands' recent decision, but just curious quickly as an aside, when you filed this uh, case, it was the Obama DOJ. They fought yeah. this case... Uh, just as much as the current administration. Mm-hmm. Um, comment about that. I mean, you might, we would think that is surprising considering I know in 16 the Obama administration put out a massive report on the health effect, a scientific assessment of the health effects on humans. So, yeah. very odd. Yeah, well, but, you know, climate change is the ultimate. It's it really is not a political question. You know, emissions have risen under all the administrations Mm -hmm. since Johnson, Republican or Democrat. I think the main difference is Democrats have been more willing to talk about and study the effects of climate change, while Republicans have been loath to do so, to even, you know, address the scientific reality of it. But when the rubber meets the road and you look at what needs to be done, namely reducing emissions, Democrats aren't that different than Republicans. You know, it's one thing to, you know, studying things are very, is very important. But when it comes to emission reductions, you know, we did not see those under the Obama administration. We did not see those under Bush, Bush two. We did not see them under Clinton. Um, and, you know, the Clinton administration is particularly interesting because, you know, you had Al Gore as, as vice right. president. And during that time, you know, EPA developed a number of very, very detailed plans in the early 90s about um, how to address the climate crisis. And that's part of our evidence. And, you know, we were able to the majority agreed with us that, you know, the, for decades, the federal government has known of the dangers of climate change. Um, so we were able to to convince the court of that as well. Um, But, you know, it really is, you know, there's just been no political leadership in terms of implementing the solutions that experts say need to be implemented. And I think you're starting to see that on on local levels um, with passage of things like 100% renewable legislation and what have you. But, you know, there's still no comprehensive plan at the state or, or national level mm-hmm. in terms of decarbonizing our energy system. Right, right. Sadly. Let's go to, uh, again, I mentioned the Supreme Court of Netherlands, uh, December 20th. This was a case filed even early in 2013 by nearly 900 co-plaintiffs. This was no known, correct me if I'm wrong, as the uh, Urgenda uh, case. And yeah, I've heard it pronounced Urgenda, but yes. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Um, in any event, they reached the opposite conclusion. And what was that? 
Yeah, well, their case was slightly different than ours. You know, their um, their case was not based on a national constitutional right. right. Um, it was based on a European um, uh, convention on human rights. And, you know, the court did find that the right to life is being um, abrogated by uh, the government's contribution to climate change. And they also recognized that the government has a duty of care uh, to protect its citizens from the perils of climate change. Mm-hmm. So it's a wonderful decision, and it upheld, upholds a lower court ruling requiring the government to um, to meet emission reductions that they had committed to through the international processes. So it's very exciting to see, you know, a court not only recognize that that people's lives are being implicated because of climate change, but but also that governments have a responsibility and a duty to protect their citizens um, from climate change. So it's it's helpful in that regard, um, but it is quite different than our case because our case is really challenging um, the United States government creation of a fossil fuel energy system. And again, you know, our case is not about the federal government not acting. The United States is responsible for 25% of cumulative emissions, mm-hmm. um, a huge amount, um, and have, have, have greatly contributed to this fact, this problem. Um, and, you know, we're hoping to, that courts will, will hold them accountable for that conduct. And, you know, it will be interesting to see U.S. courts are typically loath to rely upon courts of other jurisdictions outside of the United States. Um, so I'm not sure in terms of precedent how helpful the Urhenda case would be. But I think it um, in terms of the climate change movement, um, I think it's very helpful uh, in that regard. Right. So uh, on point, uh, the court ruled that this year the government of the Netherlands needs to reduce uh, emissions by 25 percent compared to 1990. And the decision in part was based, as you noted, on this um, uh, ECHR or the Convention on Human Rights, uh, which was uh, initially signed or uh, beginning in 1950. 1950, there was subsequent uh, protocol amendments to it. I will say, interesting, I looked this up. Not surprisingly, the United States is loath to sign these international conventions and in this case didn't, has not signed uh, the ECHR. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, you're right, from that perspective, uh, the U.S., it's irrelevant. Their decision's irrelevant since we're not a signatory uh, to that. Um, so let's go back to your organization, Our Children's Trust, uh, a not-for-profit created to secure legal rights to a safe climate. So uh, you're appealing this. You have related other cases. So what's next steps for you? Yeah, what's next steps is because this um, was a, a published opinion, because there was such a strong dissent, um, we feel that it's appropriate to file a petition for review on Bonk. And right. what that means is that the full Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal will then consider 
um, these arguments and these issues. A very small number of cases are um, granted en banc review in the Ninth Circuit. Um, but again, we feel that um, we meet the criteria. It's a case of significant public importance. And the legal issues are extremely important as well. Um, you know, what, if anything, can a court do when there's a constitutional violation of existential proportions? Right, right. Um, it's certainly something that I think the higher courts need to weigh in on. Um, it's our belief that we should be allowed to go to trial so that we could um, fully develop the factual record before these important legal questions are decided. We feel the medical doctors who are our experts should testify in court so the court can hear their explanation as to how these children are being injured. Um, the children themselves should be allowed to testify as well. Um, I think we have a history in this country of, of courts when they decide important legal questions, they typically like to do so on a fully developed factual record. And, and we don't have that yet um, because we were not able to go to trial. This was an early appeal. Mm -hmm. So well, we're you, hoping you, that that's where we'll, we'll end up back in trial before this, this does make its way up to the Supreme Court if, the, if that's where it's destined to go. Um, but we'll have to see. Our next step is the is the petition for review on Bonk. Well, I have to sadly say that relative to pursuing all the facts, certainly was not the interest of the U.S. Senate recently. But let's let's move on. Um, <laughs> yep. Um, again, per the dissent, never before has U.S. confronted an existential threat that not not only is unremedied but is actively backed by the government. There are many other cases. Uh, being pursued. Um, uh, a Vermont case was withdrawn. There's a Massachusetts case. There are several municipalities in Colorado and Washington pursuing cases. You're, you have filed several other similar cases I've read. Um, where are they just generally in maturation, I guess? Yeah, well, there's hundreds of climate change cases percolating through the right. through the courts at this day and age. You know, and climate change cases have been filed for over 40 years. So this is not something that's new. Um, I think, you know, the vast majority of cases, um, they'll raise climate change as an issue um, in, you know, individual permit appeals. Say government issues a permit to a coal-fired power plant. Mm -hmm. um, people will dispute that permit um, because the project causes and contributes to climate change. You know, and those those cases are tremendously important um, and have been very successful in getting agencies to consider the effects of climate change. But where they haven't been successful is reforming the system. Um, it's not, you know, the individual permits that cause climate change or the individual projects that cause climate change. It's it's the system. It's our energy system being based on fossil fuels. So the kinds of systemic challenges are really what the kinds of cases that we support and bring. So we do have cases in a number of other jurisdictions, um, including Alaska, Washington, Oregon, Florida, um, and those cases are challenging the state government's creation of an energy system um, that causes and contributes to climate change. You know, the federal government has a tremendous amount of control over the energy system mm -hmm. and states do as well. So that's what those cases are all about. And they're in various various places in um, litigation in those cases. And then you also mentioned a number of cities and counties have filed um 
cases against the fossil fuel companies themselves, um, arguing that they're, you know, they've essentially promoted um, dangerous products and uh, that they deceived the public about how these products will affect um, affect things. So those cases are also being argued in a number of different um, jurisdictions. And interestingly, in those state cases um, against fossil fuels companies, the fossil fuel companies uh, point their finger at the federal government and they say, hey, it's not our fault. The federal government asked us to do this and paid us to do this and had contracts with us to perpetuate the use of fossil fuels. So it's ironic to say the least (laughs) when uh, the court admits that, yeah, the federal government caused this problem, but there's nothing we can do about it. So um, hopefully this, the cycle of, of finger pointing will end and we'll, we'll ultimately get a remedy um, to protect these children because we're in a very difficult place right now. And uh, the future of this country will look very different in the coming years if, if we don't um, decarbonize as quickly as possible. Yes, as Staten said, history will not judge us uh, kindly. Um, just lastly, quickly, when might the Ninth Circuit make its decision on your appeal? Yeah, um, we we file the petition next month, um, and then it will it will be a few months likely before we be, before we hear anything by the court. But um, we'd hope to hear something before the end of the year. Okay, so with that, uh, Andre, appreciate uh, this discussion. Uh, very helpful. Uh, I hope the appeal is successful, and I hope that gives us a chance to uh, discuss possibly a different outcome. Well, thank you. I greatly appreciate your interest in this case, as well as all the folks who are in the medical community and, you know, spreading the word about how climate change is affecting human health. It's it's a critical issue and um, one that I hope will get uh, more more coverage in the coming coming years. Great. Thank you again. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, To see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archived program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.